Hello and welcome to today's PropCast, producer for Income Analytics. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder at Blackstock Consulting. I'm going to be joined today by Matthew Richardson, who's the CEO at Income Analytics. Matt's got 30 years experience working in the real estate sector across the UK, Europe, US and China. And prior to co-founding Income Analytics, he was Director of Research for European Real Estate at Fidelity International here in London. Like many in the research community, he's, uh, he's one of the many great minds to come out of the IPD universe and successfully developed and sold a couple of prop tech businesses during his career, including PMI, one of the first dot-com businesses in Asia, which was acquired by Hong Kong investors at the end of 1999. Income Analytics allows real estate investors to access, analyze, and deploy company credit data on tenants, real estate assets, and investment portfolios. Its sole role is to focus on income, as Matt explains in our conversation recorded a little bit earlier on. And that means that Income Analytics aims to sit alongside other platforms used to measure and benchmark performance. Investors and lenders can receive real-time analysis of underlying tenants, credit worthiness, and according to Income Analytics, can confidently assess future performance and ultimately the likelihood of default. Now, as Matt explained in our conversation, he believes there's huge upside to the whole sector if both the quality and uniformity of data can be improved. So Matthew Richardson was previously the Director of Research for Fidelity. He helped set up the business there and was involved heavily in the dot-com era, or pre-dot-com era, setting up uh, a business called Property Market Intelligence, PMI, uh, which was set up in Hong Kong in the 90s that was sold in, in 99. And um, Matthew, tell us a little bit about having to get an export license. I believe you had to get an export license, didn't you, for your first server that you, you shipped out to Hong Kong. Um, weird old times, really, because considering we're probably about to go back to that whole era now, aren't we, with the whole Huawei scandal? But that, that's, uh, yeah, interesting uh, in, Interesting times, I suspect, in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, it was the early days of technology in a sense. The premium was on the hardware and just simply the very early days of, of, of coding. People were just learning what they could do with the technology. Um, and back in those days, to get a a server. We'd done a deal with some microsystems out of California um, and we had to do an awful lot of paperwork to get the server sent from the US to Hong Kong. Um, very different to today. Well, I guess I guess today, I mean, one of the things is it still seems to be quite a lot of paperwork involved in, in the real estate industry, doesn't there? I mean, still, I suspect many people doing their analysis on bits of paper and on random Excel sheets. And that presumably is, is one of the things that, that you guys are trying to solve with your business. But I mean, in, in, in terms of uh, data, I guess there's lots of property data platforms now, obviously, MSCI, CoStar, uh, Radius, Data Exchange uh, are among some of the bigger ones. Um, how do you think you're going to try and take on behemoths like CoStar and MSCI? I don't think we're trying to take on anyone. I mean, we're, what we're trying to do is smooth the last bits of the, 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 the process. I mean, what we've always felt is that financial services or, or real estate investment is no different to anything else. It's a process. It's a manufacturing process. It just happens to be a virtual one. And all of the companies that you've mentioned have a role in that process throughout the life cycle of an investment property. So how we decide to buy it, how we buy it, Who's in it? How's it managed? How's it valued? Um, how does the portfolios work? How's it benchmarked? All of those companies have a um, have a role in that, and we're just adding. You know, we're we're an extra room in the in the in the manufacturing process. But we're very very much focused just on the issues surrounding uh, tenant income quality. 
So essentially, you want to make the, the analysis of real estate income uh, up to the same standards that, that you believe exist in bond market. Yeah, if you had to, yeah, if, if you wanted to do a, yeah, a, a relatively crude draw across, because obviously real estate is, is in some regards quite different to, to the bond market. But obviously, there's a large part of real estate, which is fixed income in style. You know, you're, you're, you have an agreement somebody has an agreement as a tenant to pay you money. So in a sense, you have to analyze that piece of the real estate in the way that you analyze a bond. So you're looking at duration, risk, probability of loss and default from, from, the, uh, from the borrower, in this case, the tenant who's borrowing your space in return for money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in terms of the, uh, I guess in terms of the current way people do this, what, what, what's wrong with the current way that this is done? I'd probably argue that one of the big problems is that the real estate industry remains very focused on the equity side. And by that, I mean the price. And it's interesting how many articles in the press you see that start with property prices are dot, dot, dot. When actually, if you look at the long-term performance of commercial real estate in developed markets around the world, the bulk of your long-term return comes out of your cash flow, out of your income. And that's also the most stable part of your investment and the bit that you can control. So it's always sort of mystified me slightly that in the real estate industry, we don't spend a lot more time looking at the bond piece of the equation, and we spend virtually all our time trying to figure out what's going to happen to the price, which is the one thing we can't control and is highly volatile. Yeah, yeah. And, and why, why is that, though? I mean, if obviously most investors recognise what you're saying, so it, it seems a little bit counterintuitive. I just think because there's always been a traditional way of looking at things and, and property is really a late arrival at the kind of globalization party. Property, when I first started out in the late 80s, was still a relatively parochial industry. As I said, in the mid-90s, when I was in Asia, people were laughed at if you suggested that institutional investors from the US and Europe would come to Asia. And they would have laughed even louder if you'd said that Asian investors would be actively buying large chunks of North America and Europe by the noughties. So I think it's been this, there's a number of drivers, but this globalization of property has forced the industry to say, okay, we need the analytics and we need to understand real estate so we can put it alongside other asset classes like equity and bonds mm. and understand the implications of holding a mixed portfolio and what these things are all going to do for you. So, so what do they do in, uh, in, in, in the <coughs> income markets that we don't do in real estate? How, how are you looking to solve the problem? Because I think it, it, it's, it's fine to to say, yeah, look, we're, we're 25 years behind these other sectors, um, but how are you going to solve these problems? We've got a slight advantage in the sense that we've had a lot of technology which lets us catch up quickly, and we're also being driven by a number of changes in the market, regulatory changes. Let's not forget that the bond and equity markets have a huge advantage in one very specific regard, well, they're much bigger. and that's that they are regulated. And because they're regulated, we all know what data has to be disclosed when and by whom. Which means modelling and doing analytics is very easy because we know what's going to be available. In property, there's generally completely different levels of transparency and reporting and calculations. I mean, I, I, you can probably go out into the world and find 12 ways you can calculate a yield. You can probably find 15 spellings of Marks and Spencers in somebody's portfolio and at least three versions at the same address. So what I'm saying is there's, there's been a lack of standardization, and it's not necessarily been a, 
something that everyone needed to address until now. But now there are a whole bunch of changes facing our industry, which are forcing us down this route of, of addressing data quality and addressing how we report and how we analyze our investments. Well, do you think we need to go back to, uh, to the 80s when IPD was set up and it was, you know, it was essentially a, a coming together of a lot of the main professional services businesses? The idea was to have something that was industry-wide to address this very problem that, that you've, just, you've just flagged. So how, how can you as a startup business seek to do this yourselves? Well, again, we're focused on one very specific area where actually what we're doing is bringing data from the corporate world into property. So in a sense, we have a slight advantage in that the data coming in from the, the corporate world is standardised and normalised and we're so, attaching so, it. So talk us through that process. So to what, what, what are the data sets that you're harvesting and, and crunching up? So effectively, what we're looking at is the, the standard credit ratings that are used in the industry. People already use credit scores and ratings, but they don't necessarily deploy them in the way that they could get the most value out of them. So for instance, a lot of people will send out investment particulars or I'll get, when I was in my previous job, we'll get uh, investment underwriting and I'll get a wonderful thing which tells me this tenant is rated as 5A1 by Dun & Bradstreet or whoever it happened to be providing the rating. Now empirically, that means nothing at all to me. That, that means that's a number and it's a, a view. What I need is a, a number or a default or a failure number. I need to know that what percentage probability that my tenant or the counterparty in the agreement is going to go bust and leave me high and dry. That's the, the one key piece of information I need. And what we've set out to do is restructure how that credit agency data works so we convert it from a a number into a percentage and then what we do is forecast that forward so effectively what we're, we're doing is, is two things we're identifying who is the actual counterparty because so often we see on leases the counterparty is next but in fact it isn't next it's perhaps next transport or next land for the sake of argument who are a very different company to the plc and there is no implicit guarantee from the parent that I'm going to get my rent. So I need to understand very carefully who it is I've got on the lease. And then secondly, I need a number to figure out what percentage of my cash is at risk, because that's what I would do if I was holding a bond or if I was analysing uh, an equity. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is the chances I could lose my money here? Yeah. And that's really what we've set out to do is to put a number on that, try and move us as an industry away from subjective labeling towards something that's driven by the data yeah yeah um and, and in terms of that that move away from subjective labeling as, as you suggest uh, are you referring there to the way that people talk about the, the setup of, or, or the tagging of their portfolios as being core core plus value add or you know the, the familiar phrases that 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 people use to describe investment strategies you believe that that adding this sort of empirical tagging can make those things more consistent. Yeah, definitely. The only industry I can think of, we, you know, we're the only industry I can think of that pre-labels what our fund is. Most other people look at the actual performance and then will relate the risk to the historic performance and likely future performance. 
we're the only industry which I can set up a fund and tell you it's core or core plus. Under that label, I don't have to give you any empirical evidence as to what that means, what the volatility attached to that is. And you, you get these very interesting conversations with investors where they say to you, you know, I want a core strategy, therefore I want to buy properties in the City of London. Whereas if you actually look at the market, the City of London is one of the most volatile markets. Now in other asset classes, you would say, actually, that's, there's more risk attached to that by the volatility. But what you're really, the investor's really saying to you there is, I want to buy liquidity because I know I can sell out of that market. If I need to, I can't sell out of a smaller market. So there's a lot of confusion about which bits of the risk and how they're labeled and then what numbers are attached to those um, when people are going into these decisions. And that comes to this point that we don't have a standardized analytical or underwriting process in the same way that the other markets do. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's an interesting point because again, I think you know anybody as you are familiar with IPD charts is always uh, familiar with the fact that the office, city offices, looks like something off of the casualty, doesn't it? Uh, and and you know, up until probably about ten years ago, retail was 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 a was a you know a, a rather solid hamstered incline, and and those have obviously been shredded. But but you make a good point in terms of that cost premium around liquidity so how does your does is that something that the income analytics your platform does that does it seek to address that, those sorts of quandaries we, we wouldn't try to address the um the liquidity issue because that's something that needs so to equity, be done so essentially the price of the equity is it yeah that, precisely and you've got companies like costar and rca and people who do a very good job on that as do msci because they're they're monitoring investment volumes and turnover but but i do think there's there's one point about the msci experience that that i do think we we need to take a step back and have a look at and it was this it was very revolutionary when it was set up and it's and it has changed how the industry works for the better as you you point out the challenge though was that the other investment asset classes and a lot of economists looked at the availability of benchmarks in the form of msci and said now that we have benchmarks we can do passive investment strategies like equity and bonds. So therefore, if I weight my portfolio in a similar way to the IPD, I will get a similar outcome, just as I would in an equity or bond market. Yeah. Now that has been a fundamental error, which has caused a lot of pain to our sector over the last 20 years, because of course we know that if I own two buildings in Birmingham, they'll behave in very, very different ways, even if they're identical, just simply because of who's in there, how well they're managed, etc. And the key point here is that buying an office building in central London does not give me the central London office return. It gives me the return on a building in central London, which yeah. mathematically is a very, very different thing. So what we're trying to address here as well is this issue that risk and return occurs at the asset level. And this is tremendously important because I think a lot of technology is being thrown at disintermediating the actual investment brokerage piece. And it's very difficult to foresee a situation where an investor is going to drop 100 million sterling by doing web-based analytics and not looking at the actual physical asset. Yeah. Whereas the due diligence process that goes into selecting and underwriting the numbers in that that is wide open to far better analytics and data. Yeah, yeah. And, and is it the same 
both for resi and for commercial and resi so i mean i i think you make a good point in that there is a, a a huge amount of difference that asset management plays and i think that back to your old shop of fidelity and, and other other investment houses that would be their point they would say uh that real estate is the only asset class where you can affect the outcome they would say that we're able to asset management and we're able to create better value than axa aberdeen mg or the next the, the next guy um but whereas you're you know, you're saying that that it's not possible to look at things on a, on a geographical or market basis, is is that the same for offices as it is for something like logistics or residential, multifamily, built to rent, for example? Well, I mean, at the start of your, your your question there, you were you were looking at the difference between commercial and residential, and I, I think you do have to separate those because if you look at the structure of the returns, the structural return in residential has come from the equity has come from price appreciation over time and it's far more sensitive to interest rates because of the mortgage market um, and it's obviously a far larger market and it behaves in a slightly different way because of the lot sizes and because of the number of people involved in it whereas i think commercial real estate is and traditionally has been far more income driven because the holds are longer the lot sizes are larger and effectively, you're treating space as a commodity. You're essentially, you know, letting letting space to businesses. Because yeah. all real estate is fundamentally about is somebody performing some financial activity in a location. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a commodity uh, that that space. So I think you've got to look at the two as, as quite different. I think if you're going to apply analytics to the residential market, I think you need to have a far more equity style bias because it's about turnover. It's about uh, interest rate. And it's, it's about a number of different factors, whereas commercial is driven, I think, far more by the fixed income characteristics than perhaps. Yeah. Well, well, let, let's, let's stick with commercial then. But I mean, I, but, but to the point then, are what, you know, I'm sorry to be a bit tabloidy with this, but are you saying that it's not possible to look at uh, an income analysis on a, on a market basis? Or, or if it is, what, what, what weighting do you place on the market versus the asset? You know, benchmarks are useful and they're there for a reason because they, they give us some indication of trends. But ultimately, if you look at the performance and any analysis of the MSCI will show you this, that if you look at all the funds who've outperformed on the MSI indices consistently, it's come from stock selection, not, not from market beta. Because I come back to that point that market beta is extremely difficult in property because realistically, each transaction is its own market driven by its own pricing model. Yeah. 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 Okay. Then. So, so, all right. So in terms of that, that market beating approach, what can firms do to then identify better income streams? So what is it that income analytics is going to help people do help people accomplish that they haven't been able to accomplish before? I think the first thing is actually putting a price on the risk. The first thing is actually having a number because once you have a number, you can analyze the number and you can put policies around the number. So if, if I actually know or, or have a view, it might not necessarily always be the right view, but as long as I have a view of what the probability of default is at a lease level, at a property level and across my portfolio, I can then make strategic decisions about how I want to shape that, which sectors I want to to wait towards, coming back to your earlier point, it's useful to, to look at things like that. But more importantly, I can identify and monitor 
changes in that risk structure over time because the other key feature of property of course is its illiquidity now by simply knowing that a tenant has a low score i'm not going to rush out and sell the building because selling a building takes a long time but i can begin to mitigate my risk and rather than wait for the phone call from the receivers or the tenant to say i can't pay and i've gone bust you can at least go and talk to people and say okay what are the issues here and i can also get my letting guys out there saying well if these guys go you know, are we already in play? Who are we talking to? How do we replace them, etc.? So it's it's about understanding, as I said, and putting numbers on things because once we have numbers, we can make value judgments and we can actually create a proper process rather than constantly reacting to the market and not necessarily staying on top of what's happening um, across the sector. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, look, uh, that, that's fascinating stuff. Matthew, what do you think then, you know, looking at, at the market in the UK, what questions should people be asking their asset managers over the next few weeks as we start to emerge from the first phase of this crisis and the first phase of what is going to be a, a pretty deep recession? I think the biggest thing is, is looking across the tenants that you have and then breaking them up into, to some degree, by business model and sector. The the big challenge, unlike, say, the the GFC, where we had a credit crunch, we actually have a lot of free credit at the moment. So it's going to be a different shape. I think the key word for this one is going to be serviceability. So we're looking at tenants and companies who have business models that will allow them to either cash flow through this thing because, you know, they're able to either have existing cash piles or they're in businesses which haven't been as widely affected now, obviously, if you look at business models like leisure and hotel sector, et cetera, these are markets that have been very heavily hit and will continue to be very heavily hit. And therefore, I think you have to be a little bit careful of looking to the credit industry to simply say all the credit ratings will adjust. They won't. What you need to be able to do is get down to and talk to the CFOs and your key tenants in particular and understand some very basic things around how are they taking cash on board from the government schemes? How are they shoring up their balance sheets? What are they doing to cash flow through this thing? Some of those models are going to get very stretched indeed, um, as we know, and particularly those models where we have your income short and your commitments long. So we have things like the serviced office market, and we've increasingly seen things like serviced logistics market. They're under very big pressure because tenants are not committed long on cash, whereas their costs are. Yeah, yeah, and that's obviously been the uh, the fundamental failing to WeWork and SoftBank's recently announced huge loss. So, yes, interesting times ahead. Well, um, where should people go and who should they speak to if they want to find out a bit more about this, Matthew? You can go onto our website. There's, there's a lot of information and there are also uh, sample reports and downloads available there if you want to look at, at that. Otherwise, you know, contact us from there. We're happy to run tests for people to show them what it does. It might not be for you. Hopefully it is. But we've had a, a tremendous response from the industry uh, since we launched this, needless to say. And actually, we've learned a lot in the first month or two of business here. Um, and we've discovered all kinds of very interesting things in people's portfolios. Not least the week before last where I uh, came across a tenant or a building that had been in the portfolio since medieval times, but I'm assuming the portfolio didn't exist at that time, but uh, there's been some quite interesting things thrown up in this. 
Well, that was Matthew Richardson, CEO at Income Analytics. If you'd like to know a bit more about the business, please head to incomeanalytics.com. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to stay tuned to further PropCast, please go to Apple, Spotify, or SoundCloud and just search PropCast. That's P-R-O-P, cast. I've been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock Consulting. Thanks very much for listening.